Welcome to Montgomery Talks, the podcast from Montgomery Community Media about issues with the county. I'm MCM senior reporter Doug Tolman, and we're recording this in the podcast studio in MCM's offices in Rockville. With me today is Dr. Raymond Crowell. Dr. Crowell is a clinical psychologist with more than 30 years experience. He is also the chief of the Behavioral Health and Crisis Services section of the county's Department of Health and Human Services. In that capacity, he has watched the opioid crisis explode in recent years. Welcome, Dr. Crowell. Thank you for having me. So let's start with some data. How many overdoses have occurred, say, in the last month, the last time period that you've got handy? We track overdose deaths on a month-to-month basis, but we only accumulate the total at the end of the year. So I can tell you that in 2017, there were 116 overdose deaths in the entire county from all sources of overdose. About 90 of those were due to opiates. And so what's the trend been, say, in recent years? The popular notion is that it's increasing. It has been increasing. Starting in about 2014, it jumped every year. And and of course, across the nation, we know it's it's one of the number one causes of death in the country. And Montgomery County has been no exception. It's been rising in Maryland and in Montgomery County up until this past year. I think that the, the good news is that we hit a spike in 2016. And in 2017, the number started to come down. And we've continued that trend in 2018, especially around opiates. We are about 3% below where the state is in terms of total deaths. But we are dropping in terms of overdose deaths. We're about 26% below where we were last year in deaths caused by heroin and about 20% below in deaths caused by fentanyl, which is the other synthetic opiate that's out there in the streets. So we're seeing some trends downward now in opiate overdoses. Okay. So who are these victims? Are they young? Are they old? They run the age range. We've been fortunate not to have any deaths in Montgomery County under the age of 19, but the greatest number of deaths occur between 20 and 39-year-olds. We also have deaths on the senior end, a small number, but noteworthy. But most of them are between 20 and 39 years of age. They're primarily white men and women, mostly men, but it's not just in young white men and women. It's across the the spectrum. We see deaths in, in almost every population we have in the county. Can you generalize on how many started on opioids because their doctors overprescribed painkillers? Well, we know nationally that the explosion of prescription opioids across the country tripped this wire for us and got us started on that. Most of the deaths in Montgomery County now are not due to prescription opiates. We've seen drops in the last two to three years in the amount of opiates that are prescribed in the county and in the number of opioid deaths that are caused by that. People start for a lot of different reasons. They may start in adolescence due to an injury or something that gets them put on opiates or in adulthood they get them started on prescription opiates. Once they're addicted, if the prescription becomes unavailable, they then shift to something else like heroin or fentanyl because it's cheaper. Where do these overdoses take place? There's been a handful of cases, I think, through the police reporting that you'll find a, something like in a, in a car somewhere, but where else would they happen? They occur in homes and in streets, sometimes in the cars, of course, but I think a, a large number of them are usually at a residence, either the person's home or someone else's home, some friend's home, so where they're shooting, where they're getting high. And so most of them are in a, in a, in a residence, either the victim's home or friends. The Baltimore Sun had a story, I guess it was yesterday, the day before, about a drug dealer who was sentenced to 24 years in prison for conspiring to distribute fentanyl. According to the Sun, two milligrams is a fatal dose of fentanyl, and that's that's not even a, a shake of salt on French fries. And the dealer was charged with having at least 12 kilograms. So if you do the math, that could kill six million people in Maryland, which is essentially the population of the state. That's staggering. 
Fentanyl is an incredibly deadly and dangerous drug. And yes, it is, is incredibly toxic and just the very smallest amount can cause severe illness and potentially even death. The law enforcement police officers are now required to wear hazmat kind of gear or biohazard gear to try to protect themselves when they arrest someone or break into a house where there's fentanyl just to make sure that they don't get exposed to the fumes or to touch it. It's pretty potent. And if it's such a killer, it seems odd that dealers would want to impose that on their customers. It just seems like they're going to lose their customers. It's paradoxical. The folks who are addicted to heroin want the most intense high they can get. And mixed with heroin or mixed with other substances at the right level, it'll push a person to the closest, I mean, very close to death without taking them there and give them this enormous high. And that's the thing that addicts most want, that intense rush. So even though a dealer may inadvertently kill someone, it turns out that addicts will think, well, this is really where the good stuff is. Let me go and see if I can get that. It must be that good. It was that potent. So they're looking for potency of, of effect. And, and death is the risk they're willing to take to get there. There are, I guess, counter agents to, I guess, Narcan is the one people talk about. And Narcan has been distributed in the county among police officers? We have been distributing Narcan for about four years now. We started with law enforcement and community members, but we have expanded it out tremendously in the last two years. We have Narcan, the community health nurses in the schools have Narcan. We train members of the community on a regular basis now and equip them with Narcan once we've completed training. Uh, local police officers, in addition to Montgomery County Police, are, are being trained, have been trained in the use of Narcan. We also, coming out of the emergency departments, when someone has survived a non-fatal overdose and is refusing to go to treatment, the hospitals will usually write them or their family members a prescription for Narcan. And in the last three or four months, we've just started doing some work in the jails with folks who are in the jail in recovery and giving them Narcan so that when they leave, they have that with them. Because one of the things that's a risk for folks who are in the jail is that they detox, they come off the drug, but when they go back out, if they use at the previous levels that they were using before, the body's tolerance has dropped, and so that could be fatal for them. So Narcan is a way of anticipating that they might relapse and may need some help. Now, I just want to double check something, just rewind. You said that community health nurses in the schools have Narcan. Have they had to administer any Narcan? This year is the first year we've had to administer it. They've had it for about three years in the schools, and this is the first time they've administered it. There have been five administrations, I believe, this school year. Three of them in one school, and one of them with a repeat with the same person. So, Can you repeat, name the school? No, I cannot. Can you at least say that this is a kid who, did he start on prescription painkillers because of an injury, or did this a kid who started marijuana and just got out of hand? What we know about use in school age is that starting around middle school, youth, middle school students start to experiment with prescription drugs, and they may take them out of their parents' medicine cabinets. They may get them from friends who had an injury and are now distributing the drugs. It's not clear in the cases where the Narcan was administered whether or not opiates was the only thing. There have also been instances where someone has passed out from vaping, and the amount of nicotine that you get into your system from vaping is a lot greater than from cigarettes, and so it drives pulse rate up and can make people pass out sometimes. So they administer Narcan as a precaution. So it doesn't mean necessarily that they're addicted to opiates, but when someone's respiration has changed or they're unconscious, Narcan is a safe way to try to revive them. There are no other side effects for administering Narcan, so the nurse may administer it in an effort to save a life if they suspect opiates are involved. It's not clear in all of these five cases that opiates were involved. It's just that they passed out from some form of intoxication. Which could be alcohol as well, correct? Could be alcohol, could be some other drugs. It could be the nicotine from vaping, as I mentioned, or it could be opiates. And there's been headlines about the price of Narcan has skyrocketed recently, even though it's a generic drug now, correct? I'm not certain if it's generic or not, if the patent have la has lapsed on it, but I do know that the price has definitely gone up. I'm hoping that the federal government is working on trying to work on something for prescription pricing for drugs like this. We pay somewhere in the neighborhood of $80 a dose right now um, at, at current market rates, and that's with a discount for volume and because we're government. I don't know what the price 
is for someone who goes to a pharmacy and asks for a prescription at this point, but I think it is higher. I think there was a time, not maybe just a couple of years ago, when they were saying they were inviting uh, family members to purchase Narcan if they knew other family members were addicted to opioids. That's right. We provide Narcan to family members who are addicted to opioids. It's one of the things we do in the jail mm-hmm. is train them and equip them in case their loved one overdoses at home, they can administer it and save a life. What sets Narcan apart is its nasal mist. Yes. It's the brand name for naloxone. Right. Naloxone is the medication, right. and there are three different forms of administration. Two of them are injectable, but the one that we sell, I should say, use and, and distribute for our training is the nasal mist because it's, it's most like an antihistamine. You just right. stick it up the nose, and, and you press the button, and it injects the, the medication. It's pretty much foolproof. Pretty much foolproof. If you're going to get a result, it's going to be pretty quick, and it's easy to administer. If you've ever given had a nasal inhaler, then you know how to use Narcan. You've had some numbers about schools. Do you have any numbers on how often, say, a first responder has to use uh, Narcan? And- the first responders use Narcan, and I'm thinking fire and rescue, emergency medical services, use Narcan a lot in their responses. If someone's unconscious, they will almost automatically start with a dose of Narcan to determine whether or not it's an opiate overdose, if the person's respirations have stopped, especially. I can tell you that they have adjusted their data tracking so that they now can tell us about how many times a month they administer Narcan where they're pretty certain this was an overdose. And that number runs to about between 30 and 50 a month of responses that they're on that are specifically opiate-related. Oh, that's amazing. It's it's a pretty steep number. The good news is that the deaths are declining. We are still seeing a lot of responses. Up until a few months ago, we were seeing a slight decline in the number of times that number of cases that Fire and Rescue was responding to that were clearly opiate involved. That number seems to be dropping a little bit now. We also track the information at uh, the emergency departments for folks who show up there who are opiate involved, who are for acute opiate intoxication or, or overdose. And those numbers have been shrinking just slightly as well. So the, the news is that they're They're coming down, but it's still too high to suit us. I think now's a good time to take a break. This is Montgomery Talks. I'm Doug Tallman, senior reporter at Montgomery Community Media, and I'm speaking with Dr. Raymond Crowell, the health department, about the opioid crisis in the county. We'll be right back. MCM, your community media center, is making Montgomery County a great place to live through programs like 21 This Week. Montgomery County's hardest-hitting political talk show keeps you up to date with the local political scene. Montgomery Community Media. Our middle name is Community. And we're back on Montgomery Talks, the podcast on Montgomery County issues. I'm speaking with Dr. Raymond Crowell with the County Health Department about the opioid crisis. And of course, I'm Doug Tallman, senior reporter at Montgomery Community Media. The first half of our discussion was basically laying the groundwork of the problem. I guess now I'd like to talk more about the solutions to that problem. And there are a couple of things that the county is doing. So what is probably the number one way in which the county is combating the opioid crisis? Well, our focal point for addressing the problem is a group we refer to as the overdose intervention team that's been in operation for just a little longer than the governor's declared state of emergency on overdose interventions. But it responds and works in collaboration with the state. And that's fire and rescue, police, health and human services, uh, providers, hospitals, and a number of folks that come together and community members that come together to try to collectively intervene and reduce the overdose deaths. We're focused on three or four things. One of them is education and, and public awareness. And so we do PSAs in theaters. We do education in schools and in communities around 
around the dangers of addiction and substance abuse and where to get help, of course. We do a lot of prevention work. The police are doing interdiction work along with the state's attorneys to try to find drugs and, and stop them from coming into the county and to arrest and prosecute dealers for distribution. Narcan, we've talked about, as something we do. We also distribute, along with Narcan, something called, the market name is, is Dispose RX, but it's a chemical that allows you to mix with your unused prescriptions and mix it with warm water, and it renders them inert so that you can just do that and drop it into a landfill. So if you're in your home and you have that, we can you can get that and, and, and dispose of your medications. The other thing we do is the police department has recently added six drop boxes in precincts around the county that people can drop their unused medications into. They do an annual drug take back, but they also do this 24-7 drop box so you can get rid of the old medications. The other thing we're working on is treatment and recovery, of course. And we have a program that does outreach in concert with fire and rescue and law enforcement and the hospital. So when someone's had an overdose, a non-fatal overdose, we will send a team out to engage them to try to get them to, in that moment where they've survived, to say, I need to get treatment and to come into treatment. And we can take them up to any number of places for treatment. But Avery Road Treatment Center is where we do most of our detox work uh, in, in the county. So we, in, we will take them there. And how receptive are people to getting treatment? After an overdose, it's a moment where the family is there, the physicians are there, the, the paramedics are there, and they're all saying to them, look, you were dead. We brought you back to life. You could die the next time. And surprisingly, we're finding, well, not surprisingly, I guess we're finding a number of people who are ready and who will say, yes, I'll take treatment. So I'll, I'll go into treatment. So they will accept it. And then our task is to very quickly get them into treatment before they change their mind or before the craving sets back in. But we're considering some other options that will help us with that, including things like uh, injectable buprenorphine, which is another medication that helps with cravings and reduces the urge for it to use. So we can do some of that at medicated-assisted treatment programs in the county that will help folks who want to start this journey into recovery and stay on the path while they're getting tr- other kinds of treatment. And how many people are getting treatment now at, say, Avery Road? We have three programs at Avery Road, but the one that's most relevant for this one is we have a 60-bed detox facility at Avery Road. So at any given time, there can be as many as 60 people in treatment, and we could have a number of folks waiting to get into treatment. Average length of stay is about 20 days in that program, and then they can go to another program or go to outpatient. So that's about the length of time it takes to open up a slot for someone. And the waiting list is tends to be about, waiting list is a kind of a euphemism, about two or three days to get in. So it's a, it's a relatively short period of time. We'd like to make that zero, but capacity is, is what it is right now. So if there's a waiting list, then 60 beds are full. If we've got 60 beds full, then we're running a waiting list that's a day or two, maybe three days at max yeah, right. to, to get in before someone is ready to move to another facility. Right. How often are you have less than 60 people in there? Is it fairly often or is it? Yeah, it's fairly often. There's usually, there's part of the lag time is that there's usually a time to turn over the bed. You have to clean it, sterilize the room and, and, and condition the room and get it ready for the next person. So we are usually pretty close to full most of the time. There are dips in that, maybe fall, maybe spring, there may be some dips. But during the summer, we run pretty full. We're about to build a new facility that will be just slightly larger than the old one, but it'll be a better integrated facility and coordinated with, with other kinds of treatment. So we can go from the inpatient detox phase to an outpatient medicated assisted treatment phase if we need to. There's also a small halfway house called Avery House for Women on that campus, on the Avery Road campus that serves women who have children, young children. And Gaithersburg runs Wells Robertson for homeless people with addiction issues, correct? Wells Robinson runs a program for folks who are homeless and who have addiction, yes. Yeah. So there are a number of options available to people. There are a lot of different options available to people. The county runs both the Avery Road complex, but we also contract with a number of providers to do work for outpatient work for women who are in recovery, adolescents, 
adolescents who are in recovery. We run an outpatient program, medicated assisted programs, and we're partnering, we partner with the hospitals who also on occasion run addictions treatment programs on an outpatient basis as well. There are options. There are options. So helps available. One of the more controversial options, though, you had suggested once upon a time, safe houses for, for addicts. Can you just talk, talk a little bit about what the status is of that? So a safe house is a place where addicts can come and safely inject themselves with medication while there's a paramedic or someone watching, and at the same time be exposed to options for help and treatment. So it's not just come on in and shoot up. It is come on in, here are the dangers, here are the risks. We'd rather have you doing that under some, rather have you not doing it at all, but if you're going to shoot up, then under some supervision where someone can save your life if things go awry. And by the way, here are some places you can get some treatment. So there's a press to get people to not shoot up and go into treatment. We have not initiated one of those or any of those in Montgomery County at this time. It's something we're still looking at as a county about when, where, and how we would do that. The places where it's been done, some show some good results for that, some show uneven results. So we're still studying to see what the best practice would be for Montgomery County. As I understand, they're not uncommon in Europe, but I guess in this country they are quite uncommon. They're quite uncommon in this country. There are a few places in, in I don't know that there's any place in Maryland that's doing it at this point, but it's very rare here. But it, it probably is going to grow as an approach because it's, it falls into the category of what we call harm reduction. The goal is, of course, to get people into treatment and off drugs. But if we can keep you alive until you reach that point where you're ready to, to, to accept treatment, that saves lives. It's a trade-off. And there's a lot of back and forth and a lot of people have different feelings about whether or not we should do that or not. But we opt on the side of trying to save lives. Narcan is the same thing. We opt on the side of trying to keep people alive until we can get them to the point where they're ready to accept treatment. So Narcan, syringe exchanges, safe houses are all part of that harm reduction effort to keep people from dying. Are there any legal ramifications for a safe house? Probably we can't have dealers showing up, you know, so excessive Obviously. excessive amounts and, and certainly want to be in a position to offer people help rather than just become a place where people can shoot and, and go on about their merry way. So some small ramifications and, and potentially I don't know what has happened legally around the country with safe houses, whether or not families have filed a suit because of a wrongful death of, of a loved one as a result of them being allowed to shoot up in a safe house. I just don't know that that's right. happened yet. Right. And there's an event coming up in Rockville, correct? There are a couple of things coming up that I wanted to share with folks. One of them is that I said we do Narcan training. We do Narcan trainings on a regular basis across the county. There's one today that I obviously isn't going to do our listeners any good, but we have an overdose response program that people can call in and get the schedule for when the next public event is going to be held. And I can share that number with you. It's 240-777-1836. And they'll tell you the schedule and how to sign up and how to register. The other thing that we're doing as part of our public awareness campaign, we are collaborating with cities and we do a number of forums ourselves, but we're also collaborating with Rockville and Gaithersburg on Rockville Goes Purple, which is the signature event that's going across the country. People are, are painting their cities purple or coloring, changing their lights to purple to call awareness to opiate overdoses. Rockville kicked off their month-long effort to go purple last week, and they're doing another event on uh, Saturday, March 30th at 9.30 a.m. at Montgomery College. So they're doing an event on Saturday, March 30th at 9.30 in the morning at, uh, at, at Montgomery College uh, in uh, the Science West building on Manakee Street. So it's open to anybody and everyone who wants to come and participate. There is limited seating, so folks will need to register, and they can register at rockvillemd.gov registration and registering for course 9455. I'll make sure you get all of that as well. So we'll have it on our website if anybody's okay. listening in. Okay. That phone number again was 240-777-1836. And it would provide people information about? It's our overdose response program coordinator, and it gives you information about where we are training and dispensing Narcan next in the county.
Okay. If you have a loved one who is overdosing, or obviously 911 would probably be the first place to call. Is there any resources on 311? You can call 911, of course. You can also call 311, but the faster number is to call the, the Montgomery County Crisis Center and let them know you've got someone that you need to try to get some help with, and that's 240-777-4000 is the best number. That's 24-7, 365 days a year. There's someone manning those phones. You don't get put on hold. 311 will transfer you to the crisis center if you tell them that you're looking for some help for someone who's, who's got a substance abuse. So it'll save you a step to call the 4000 number. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Crowell. This has been very, very, very interesting. Once again, those phone numbers are 240-777-1836 for the opioid crisis training number and also 240-777-4000 for the opioid crisis hotline. For the crisis services. Right. Right. This has been Montgomery Talks. I'm Doug Tolman, senior reporter with Montgomery Community Media, and I've been speaking with Dr. Raymond Crowell, who's with the health department and has seen the uh, opioid crisis firsthand for the last several years. Our engineer today was Carolyn Raskowskis, and our executive producer is Gaynell Evans. Please join us next time for Montgomery Talks when we'll be finding other issues up at the county. Thank you.